Don't let me spoil a good time, but the year of our Lord 2016 was eight, count them, eight years ago. Kids the same age as the iPhone are now celebrating their sweet 16s. In today's America, the past isn't a foreign country, it's an illegal alien, one step away from being deported by the world controllers, bent on ensuring you never know anything they don't want you to remember. How many people, for instance, can still recall the Great Reset? Something something scary headlines, something something international conferences, the same scaly-faced ancients in pantsuits and ties, the same memes, the same ranting conscientious objectors, the same life cycle of quote-unquote news fading into the black background, vanishing into the Bermuda Triangle of our stunned collective consciousness, sinking like an anchor, chained to our feet ever deeper into the internet's wide sargasso sea. It's the computers who have all the memory now, and all the memories, ours, mountains of it, Garbage piles, the records of our every waking moment, lost to us in our narcotized necrosis, but not to the databanks of the unblinking Borg and its unblinking human operators. I'm tempted to say that today the right to keep and bear memories must not be infringed. That today the forming of memories is a revolutionary act. But one of the most important things we have to remember is that remembrance is not a rebellion, but a piety, a duty, an honor. A pillar of the love that allows us to go on, to try again, to protect and defend the bare fundaments of life. The love of the God who created us all and all things, visible and invisible, whose grace and unearned forgiveness puts the universe information each instant of each moment of each hour of each day. We're going deep today with Michael Rechtenwald, the top chronicler and huge nemesis of the Great Reset. I am James Polis, and this is Zero Hour. Well, he's the author of 12 books and a distinguished fellow at Hillsdale College. Michael has taught at universities from NYU to Duke to Carnegie Mellon. His academic and popular writings are to be found pretty much everywhere, from Cambridge University Press to the Washington Post. A PhD in literature and culture, he has appeared on Tucker, Glenn Beck, Laura Ingram, zillions more, spoken to fawning audiences from Turning Point to Hillsdale to the conservatives and libertarians at Microsoft. On top of all that, he is a former, I repeat, former Marxist. Michael. Welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here, James. Thanks for having me. Of course. Well, we only have a four of your books here. Uh, yeah. Plenty more in the stack. Um, you know, prolific authorship, uh, near and dear to my heart. I've got a few, few of them are on the on the shelf here. Uh, but gosh, how do you do twelve? And you know, we're talking like there's a novel, there's sort of deep academic stuff. Uh, you're kind of covering the bases. Um, how do you go from zero to twelve? With writing, uh, well, you know, I mean, it's like the beginning is like always chiseling in granite. It's tough. It's always the same process. Until you get rolling, it's misery. But uh, it just starts to, uh, I, I get into a rhythm of like 12, 15 hour days where I'm writing and I hardly eat. Uh, and sometimes I don't even get up. And uh, <laughs> So the more pain, the more the gain. Yeah, that's right. 
Yeah, I mean, you must have uh, you must have toughened up over the course of reading what every dyed in the wool Marxist has to read oh. as, a, as a young. You know, yeah, this is like hundreds and hundreds of pages of extremely dense text. A dense, abstruse, and utterly uh, useless when it comes down to it, except for understanding, you know, where these people are coming from and what they think. Well, like, walk us through this. You you are first introduced to, I don't know if it was, uh, you know, the 1848 or the German ideology or, you know, what, whatever it was, sort of the great gateway Marxist drug for you. But you, yeah. you go in, you, you start swimming around in the water, it starts to make sense or, I mean, paint for us, you know, this picture of kind of how, what is it that led you in and what is it that led you out? Oh, that's a great question. So, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the German ideology. Uh, that was a very instrumental book because that, that laid down the materialist conception of history. And to me, that was, uh, you know, that was like revolutionary ideologically and ideationally. I thought it was just an amazing way of understanding, you know, history and uh, human cognition. And, uh, you know, effectively, he takes everything and flips it on its head, you know, takes Hegel and flips it on its head. And he starts into, uh, you know, with Engels, uh, he starts into this whole different way of understanding time. And uh, that was very intriguing to me. But it took uh, many, many texts uh, coming at me like nonstop from an academia graduate school, just an endless uh, array of leftists and Marxists and postmodernists and feminists texts, just like, you know, basically uh, pounding me with this stuff on, on a regular basis for me to actually take the hook and, and then become, you know, very firmly, staunchly behind the agenda. So it's interesting, you know, for, for the uninitiated, uh, you got Hegel, who's like big phenomenology of spirit guys, right. or these grand invisible forces moving the world. Uh, right. The closest that you got to materialism was sort of Napoleon riding in, you know, triumphant on his horse and like, exactly. okay, well, I can touch this guy. That And he says, that's the spirit of the world on horseback. Right. Uh, and so Marx comes along as well, actually, you know, it's all explicable by, by the visible world, by tangible concrete things. Right. Uh, interesting though, you know, the, the famous quote coming out of, uh, coming out of Marx, all that is solid melts into air. Right. So like capitalism becomes the bad guy because right. it makes everything sort of invisible. And yet, you know, who's filling up the world with all of these kind of <laughs> ideas, all these concepts, right. just sort of an endless kind of deluge of, of critical analysis? Well, it's those guys, right? Yeah, I, I'm actually, you know, the interesting thing is that, you know, capitalism is providing the whole playground for Marx and giving him, uh, you know, the fodder with which he could build his ideas. Without it, he doesn't exist. In fact, that's pretty much what he said. Uh, so capitalism is uh, the forerunner, and it's the necessary precursor to his whole way of thinking. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, interesting that he is so scathing towards it because it is really the prop uh, on which his work rests. It's interesting to me, at least, you know, having been through academic political theory myself and having yeah. the scars tell the tale, uh, Marxism is, you know, is really sort of back in the public consciousness right, right now, uh, especially on the right. You know, oh, this is this is cultural Marxism. Right. This is, uh, you know, it's kind of kind of funny to me where it's like critical thinking, good critical theory, bad. I'm sort of like, OK, yeah, yeah. Um, so, you know, do you think that's right? That, that this emphasis on Mar is it all reducible to sort of some flavor or another of Marxism, the problem? Uh, there's, there's so many other elements coming in. Uh, so, you know, there's the basic ethos of like the 
oppressor oppressed uh, this dyad, this oppressor oppressed uh, oppressor dyad. Uh, You're either oppressing or being oppressed. Right. And uh, so that in Marxist terms, of course, that's the uh, capitalist class and the proletariat. This gets transmuted into uh, identity terms uh, with postmodernism and identity politics. But there's there's more to it than that. Um, I think that um, Marx would probably be uh, disgusted by the left, the contemporary left, to be honest. Uh, say a little bit more about that. Well, yeah. You know, so you, you, you bring him back, you thaw him out, you take him for a walk around, uh, you know, Greenpoint or, or Berkeley <laughs> or wherever. What, is, what does he say? He says, basically, these people are, um, they're caught in the idea, ideas. They think that ideas will change the world. They think that identity is, is, uh, is permanent and that it's meaningful and that it can serve as a wedge to change society, whereas that's, to him, identity would be a trap. It's, it's actually a dead end, a cul-de-sac. It's something that he would say that has to be eradicated. This is like false consciousness. It's false right? consciousness, yeah. indeed. Uh, okay, something else. I got to touch on this. I mean, you know, a lot of guys on the right sort of arguing about what counts as Marxism and, and, and what doesn't. And trying, yeah. Trying to find the root of it. Uh, inevitably, you know, sort of like, well, Marx was like the you know, secular Jew. And so this is kind of like if you're looking for where things started to go wrong, sort of all these Christians turn to kind of post-Christians because they're all taking notes from the secular Jew. Well, there's you got Friedrich Engels sitting right there, too. Right. And I think Engels is like sort of bizarrely neglected or ignored, um, yeah. even though, you know, there's kind of among among the, the, the post hipsters on the left, there's this vogue for like sexy totalitarians when they were young, like young Joseph Stalin, like what a hottie. I mean, Engels, <laughs> is like, Engels looked like he could be walking around in, in Greenpoint or, or Berkeley right now. And you look at this guy and, you know, stop me if this sounds familiar, sort of like, uh, uh, rich parents kind of helicoptering, supporting mm -hmm. him financially, mm -hmm. worried about his future, but they let him sort of travel around, bum around, hang out with the radicals. They support him financially to sort of sit at home and write this fan exactly. fiction, this sort of like, you know, Protestant Gnosticism, sort of post-Christian, you know, we'll, we'll bring heaven down to earth again and it'll be great. That's a big part of what's really going on with what's described as Marxism. And it doesn't really have anything much to do with, with secular Judaism, right? No, not much. It, it's, uh, you know, Marx was a very serious critic of, of Judaism. You know, he called it practical. Uh, he called it, uh, he called capitalism practical Judaism. So he was very much uh, a critic of that. But going back to Engels, really, Engels is the first woke capitalist, really. Uh, you know, we have now this phenomenon where the corporate world is embracing leftism in general. And here we had Engels doing, uh, doing this. I mean, he was a factory owner. He owned a factory. And he supported Marx uh, almost entirely. Uh, and he even took uh, the blame for an illegitimate son that Marx had with, uh, with, his, uh, with his caretaker, with his maid, in effect. So, uh, yeah, uh, Engels, was, uh, Engels is uh, a very interesting character with reference to today's uh, woke capitalist movement. Well, one of the, the the good things, I guess, about uh, Marxism is if you're uh, if you're deconverting, it's a much uh, more painless process than uh, detransitioning from from gender surgery or whatever. Yeah. So you know, nevertheless, it, I, I'm sure it was uh, painful in its, it's own still way torturous. It's, for you. Yeah. So like, how long did it take? What was it like? Did you have dark nights of the soul? It's like coming out of Plato's cave. 
you know, you, you, you're looking at the uh, third remove of reality, a kind of facsimile uh, of a facsimile, a shadow of a facsimile. And uh, you come out and you're dazzled. Your eyes are opened for the first time. Uh, the scales fall off and you start to see things that it hurts. Was there a special someone in your life who, who led you out of the cave? Well, I would say actually it was Ludwig von Mises. <laughs> so nothing romantic. Right. Uh, but, but an intimate relationship, nevertheless. Yeah, nevertheless. But actually the left did more, to me, did more for my conversion than anybody. Um, I think it was a trauma. I suffered a trauma and that trauma actually opened up my eyes. They did for me what I couldn't do for myself. Was there a moment where you like uh, doing some direct action or just like moldering away in the faculty lounge? Like where, where did you find yourself when it, you started to realize it, it that started things were happening. Not I was in a hotel. It's called the Jane in New York because mm -hmm. I would uh, actually uh, commute to New York from Pittsburgh for a while at the end because I did. I just didn't want to be up there that much. So I stayed at this hotel called the Jane. It's a classy spot. Not, yeah. not very Marxist. Days. Yeah, that's right. I'm walking around this hotel and I thought, if I start to say what's on my mind as an NYU professor, all hell will break loose. And sure enough, it did. Sounds like fun. Yeah. How did it start? How did you break the seal? It started when I made this Twitter account, the anti-PC NYU prof, and uh, started making these tweets. And uh, I effectively started to let, let things rip. I, I had bottled up so much. Uh, so many ideas and, and independent thoughts, uh, critical thoughts about leftism, about the gender ideology, about uh, the safetyism, and the, the so much about the left that it was just driving me crazy. I had and this was what year that you started to 2016 go in the early okay. fall. Yeah, great timing. Yeah, it was perfect timing. And, uh, you know, to call yourself anti-PC at NYU it's, it's, it's just utter heresy, first of all. Sure. And so they came after me. Uh, what happened is they started, a, a, a reporter basically started trying to figure out who I was. And uh, then fact came out. <laughs> yeah, they do that. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's journalism. <laughs> that's what they do. Those good ones do that. So they're yeah, better they're, than they're most. Yeah, they're the fifth estate, the branch of government, yeah. the secret police part. Yeah. So then they just came out and asked me, who are you? You know, and I, I, I met with them and we had this interview and I let it all rip. And uh, that's, that's when uh, the administration, the faculty... It came down on me like a ton of bricks. It was intense. So it's 2016. Yeah. You're taking the plunge. Did right. you go like full MAGA or did you sort of I pass did through like I was libertarianism? A Marxist in Sometimes September. people do that. I was a Marxist in September and I voted for Trump in November. That's incredible. <laughs> how was that? How was that campaign? For, were you like on board from like coming down the golden uh, escalator? Mm -hmm. Like what, did, was there a moment where Trump sort of clicked for you? Well, to me, it was like what I, I liked the irreverence of it right off the top because I, I just like that. I just have like an irreverent streak. So when he came down the elevator and started talking about Mexicans and all this stuff, you know, how they're, uh, you know, criminals. And I was like, wow, this guy's nuts. <laughs> and I was like, this is really something else. And then uh, when they started coming after him, but what really was the turning point, though, was actually Hillary Clinton when she when she talked about the basket of deplorables. That's what flipped me right there because I said, those people are my people. Those are the people I really identify with, not you coastal elites like Hillary Clinton who disgusted me, you know, 
Uh, so whenever she said that, I flipped. That was it. I was on board. Yeah. So, I mean, this is this is sort of another one of those things for me where it's like, if you look at the New York scene, like Dime Square and all that, I don't know if you keep up with sort of what the, the youngins are up to, but yeah. there is this kind of like like psychotic sort of bent in some cases where it's like, I may be trans, but I say the N-word, so I'm based. And it's like, <laughs> hold on a minute. But it's, I've seen, you know, it, it, watching this sort of attempt at a resurgence of uh, a kind of rebelliousness in politics yeah. in New York, yeah, where like young people are like, the left is lame. Like it's, it's so predictable. It's so played out right. that you know we will we will just make that sort of hard right turn, even if it's really nothing that much different from what punk was in even if it's in the early eighties. Yeah, it's aesthetic. You know, and yeah, and so you know you see a guy like Trump. You're kind of a detransitioning Marxist. You go like, <laughs> wow, someone who is actually like gets my pulse pounding a little bit, is a little bit unpredictable, in short, has charisma. Right. And you go back to the 60s and 70s, like, you know, as well as anyone, like all of the charisma was on the left. Yeah, absolutely. All of the, the, the creatives and the geniuses and the artists and, you know, is novelists, painters, architects, just everywhere you turned. Except for if Tom you Wolf, wanted, maybe. Yes, he was the, the one guy. And yeah. he had to, like, wear the suit and the whole thing in right. order to, like, signal that. furiously that he was not like the others. <laughs> yeah. Not a square. Um, yeah. What, what happened? How is it that we went from an America in, in which all, pretty much every single creative artist, yeah. genius public figure yeah. who um, had something to say, you know, like when you go back and look at what, like uh, uh, the, the scene around Bob Dylan, you know, those folks mm -hmm. will be like, well, if you didn't have something to say, you would not make it in music, no yeah, matter how talented right. you were. Right. And that's how you need to understand the whole Bob thing. Right. You know, there's like one anecdote, one guy, he was like, uh, uh, Bob called him up and he's like, hey, you want to come on tour with me for the circus thing that he was doing? Uh, and, you know, these are old New York friends. The guy's like, well, sure, you know, and but like, what's in it for me? And the answer turned out to be, well, like, I got a leather jacket at the end of the tour. Like, this is like a not a sort of, you know, Austrian economics world. <laughs> this is like all about the vibe, all about the charisma yeah. and all about having something to say and doing so in an artful way. Yeah. Now we're in a time yeah. when mm. the left has been just castrated yeah. with regard to that kind of unpredictable creativity and genius. Yeah. And some of it's trying to make its way over to the right. But this is very uncertain times. Digital's kind of changed media in a way that people really don't know is should i write a novel is that cringe now like right. how do you how do you assess where we are moving culturally and how that has like implications for politics right now well what i think happened was that that the establishment for lack of a better term used trump as a foil in order to uh, effectively make them look like they were uh uh that they were oppositional to everything that Trump was, like racism, sexism, misogyny, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, what they managed to do was get the entire left backing everything about the establishment, including neocons to this, at this point. So they've got the left uh, basically supporting, uh, you know, the military industrial complex, uh, the uh, alphabet agencies, uh, war, uh, corporate, uh, big tech, uh, corporate wokeness, uh, they basically have them, uh, signed on to the whole, uh, the whole, uh, panoply of establishment interests. 
It's been really incredible. I mean, you look at what they did to, to Bernie Sanders, you know, like, look how they massacred my boy. Right. A lot of these sort of the dirtbag left or whatever you want to call them. Right. You know, they're they're big mad, but ultimately um, couldn't stop it. Uh, right. Sanders has been totally, you know, they got him uh, on his hands and knees with, yeah. a, with a leash. Um, is, is that kind of old school, unreconstructed, uh, sort of more populist, Marxist character is that person ever coming back? I don't think American so. Left? I think that's gone. I think that the the populism will stay on the right for the foreseeable future because I just don't think that they have the left has become so identified with the establishment. There's hardly, there's no space between them, and so you're not going to see populism on that side. You're going to see a lot of what they're doing is. They flatter the, the left, basically, by telling them, your ideas are right, you're the intelligent ones, you're the intellectuals, you're the scholars. Uh, this flattery goes a long way in, in seducing leftists into supporting the current thing, in particular, the establishment's current thing. That's just a, it's a very remarkable transformation that's happened over the past. I mean, I look at myself and I go, in some ways, I'm more left than these people still because I'm anti-war. Uh, I'm pro-market. That's a difference. That's one of the major distinctions. But I still, I still uh, despise the the uh, intelligence agencies and the uh, you know the state uh, bureaucracy and, and on and on. But uh, but they don't. So. Uh, well, this is sort of like, you know, you got Donald Trump out there right now going like, am I a conservative? Like, oh, no, it's a common sense. Like, that's yeah. that's what I am. You see these these categories of left and right. And, yeah. you know, being a sort of uh, uh, intellectual historian of sorts yourself, yeah. you know, these things that right and left are not these like platonic no, forms. This emerged out of that's a revolutionary exactly. French democracy and kind of staggered on and became these other things and just the way that they've been used and abused sort of taking leftists yeah. and turning them into you know into members of the Borg like are these categories of right now yeah, they're survive not from that's a great point and you know I get this a lot from people uh, in in arguing when I when I say left here what I mean is is people that identify with leftism okay now they they would tell you they're leftists that that's basically the point uh, but, uh, and, and, you know, but you're right. There's no platonic ideal form of leftism or rightism. They're just, these don't exist. This is a, whatever they are, they are. And that's in the moment. Uh, they're historically uh, transmutable and they have transmuted quite a bit. So what I would say here is that uh, it's, it's not the left that, that, that I oppose, for example. It's not leftism per se that I oppose. Uh, I would say that I oppose statism more than I do leftism. Uh, so, and it just so happens, though, that leftists are statists. Uh, so, there it is. I think about uh, Constantinople in the bad old days when it was the blues versus the greens, sort of like two different, you know, cheering for different uh, yeah. contenders in the in the games, and then it turned into sort of like street riots and almost <laughs> a, almost a revolution. You know, right. like, what's a blue? What's a green? Well, exactly. it's this it's this mob. Versus that mob. Yeah. Um, let's talk about, I mean, you, you, like Cornell West is a yeah. guy who is sort of like that last figure. I think, yeah. I, I always forget, it might have been like ta Coates who he like hounded off of Twitter by just calling him a neolib over and yeah. over again until yeah. he gave up. Uh, he's running for president, yeah. uh, kind of a, a free-for-all right now. Do you see um, the, the, the left um, settling 
around Joe Biden until further notice? Do you think that uh, Gavin Newsom's kind of going to be subbed in? How do you size well, it up? I mean, let me give you a, a, a nice little anecdote about uh, Cornell West yeah. first. I was sitting in a church in Brooklyn and Bob Avakian, the head of the uh, US, uh, USA Revolutionary P Communist Party, was speaking. And I'm sitting right next to uh, Cornell West. He was what year? Uh, this is like 2014. Great. 15, pretty, OK, sure. Right in there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then Cornell West had a, subsequently had a debate with Bob Avakian about Christianity or religion, basically. But Bob Avakian is disgusting. He's this vulgar. Uh, screeching, screaming, nasty, uh, very, very, um, uh, yeah, he's just a, a disgusting human being. He hates any religion and he was, he, he was, he, he'll bash it endlessly. And uh, Cornell West and he had a debate about that. And anyway, I don't think that that brand of leftism or that brand of uh, the Democratic Party will ever fly again. It's, it's, it's done. You want to talk about race? Let's talk about race. Sure. Uh, I mean, you know, Cornell West, uh, I've, I've had a few, uh, I've crossed paths with Cornell a few times. Uh, big fan of Alexis de Tocqueville, uh, mm -hmm. Cornell West. So, you mm -hmm. know, I did a Tocqueville book and so we had some sort of yeah. a brief bro moment. Uh, yeah. And he's a, he's a big hugger. So, you know, he's the best we got, you know, Alexis de Tocqueville. Um, right. But, you know, also, also a big fan of jazz and jazz as a, a vehicle of this, this sort of deeply rooted spiritual uh, public-minded engagement. Uh, yeah. So, you know, a love supreme, like, well, what is that? What does that mean? Yeah. How how can we sort of rehear what was being said, uh, you know, on that record or, or records That's like it? That's a great it. question. Um, I don't think you've gotten into music at all. You seem to have done just about everything else. Uh, but, you know, sizing up the way that black America has been just used and abused, and in some ways, I think, just spiritually broken, you know, yeah. not everyone, but you just look at the wreckage and almost like they were sort of trying out this oh. way of just, you know, buck breaking a people. And if you can do it here, then you can do it anywhere. You can set up franchises that's and that's now the model for governance. How's is, you know, is that is that going to continue? And and is there is there a is there a light at the end of the tunnel? for? Well, Black that's America? a great way you characterize it. That's that's precisely how I see it. I see the I see that they've basically been a people that have been experimented with. Uh, and they've been, uh, you know, not just the Tuskegee, uh, Tuskegee experiments, but, you know, in every respect, they're kind of like in a, a, a social, uh, a social test tube and they're being, you know, played with. And uh, the last thing that they're doing with them of late, that is to say, is using them as weapons against the majority. This is the key. Uh, they weaponized uh, blacks and it's being done by the elite. I think it's not being really uh, marshaled or initiated by blacks, but they're, they're, they're weaponizing them and attempting to uh, inflame uh, total resentment and re disgruntlement and disdain, you know, basically anti-white fervor uh, in order to bring down this white majority uh, and to break it up, to break up its power because that represents an impediment to the global elite's agenda. So here's here's statism in yeah. its purest form. Yeah. Although I do want to ask you, like, just you know, for the for the sake of uh, the the zillions of human beings who will watch this segment between now and the end of time, uh, what do you mean by statism? Like, how do how do you how do we know it when we see it? That's a great question. So so the state, uh, state the state has its own interests, and uh, it it is it tempts to perpetrate itself just like any other organism or organization. It looks to uh, to increase its size, its power, 
and so forth. And so I look at statism as any, any kind of contribution to increasing state power, increasing state influence, size, scope, penetration. Uh, so I, I, that's, you know, I think that statism is actually the enemy. It's not capitalist class, as I used to think. I used to think the capitalist class was the ruling class. And now I don't. I, I think the ruling class is demonstrably the state plus its favored partners, its favored elites. And that's who that's who's really that's who we're really up against. That's who's manipulating different segments of the population like black Americans in order to weaponize them against the majority, because they definitely want to break up the power base of the white majority. So I want to get into the weeds of, uh, of the Great Reset here, of oh, course. Sure. Uh, Mitt Romney, probably the best thing he ever said. The weeds are important, um, but I want to back into it a little bit. Yeah. Just, just do the statism thing a little bit more. Um, how, do you, how do you fight it? I mean, this thing has just grown and grown. Yeah. Uh, the administrative state or, or the Borg or the Blob or the IC, you know, all these kinds of, of different names. Maybe we have too many names. Maybe the search for names is, is, mm -hmm. is uh, conservatives are getting hung up on, if we can just name it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's a little bit of that. I understand advertising yeah. is important. You want yeah, to be able yeah. to to bumper sticker it and that's okay but if you have too many bumper stickers you're the crazy leftist person yeah. with the the the, yeah. the volkswagens just blanketed um so yeah. like how, yeah, okay we got we got this thing uh it's expanding it's setting up franchises uh the state can almost just create more of itself by saying that is now the state i just nationalize it right exactly um so how do we fight it like where's mm -hmm. the seam is there a weak point you know what's what's the metaphor where do we yeah, begin it's not i don't think it's fought in the in the way that leftists fight their battles, with, which is by virtue of uh, collectivism and uh, centralized uh, centralization, they they try to take on the center, and they do it you know in a collective manner. So I think that the only way you beat the state is by withdrawal. It's decentralization. It's uh, you know not literal necessary secession, but the the spirit of secessionism and decentralization is how you how you beat the state. So this is actually like really controversial now. Uh, if yeah. you, you know, especially if you get a drink or two in people who are like out there uh, trying to make a, a, a life as a, as a movement person, you know, there, yeah. are, there are a lot of folks and, you know, some of them, you know, friends, I, I respect them more. We need uh, Alinsky for the right. Yeah. You know, yeah. we need George Soros of the right. We need open society. We got to have our own NGOs. We got to have our own long mm. march to the institution. They really just really have become convinced that the left won yeah. because they got the tactics right. They got the they, yeah. they figured out how to fight the war. And so we got to imitate them if we want to beat them. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the right wing long march to the institutions. Yeah. I, I don't buy it. Uh, I think that basically these institutions can be discredited by virtue of withdrawal from them and the establishment of parallel structures, parallel uh, economic, parallel uh, cultural, parallel other structures. I think the academia, trying to, for example, to try to take over academia, it's like trying to take over uh, rot. I mean, what are you going to do with it? It's destroyed. Uh, so I don't see any point in trying to uh, rescue these institutions from the damage that the, uh, the left has done to them. Well, you know, look, as far as it goes, I agree with you. There are, you know, there is pushback and I've gotten some of it. And, you know, you got to you got to wrestle with these things. 
um, you got those grill Americans out there who you leave me alone. I just want to grill. You know, oh, I, I can't hear you. America's collapsing, but you know, I've got my got my my McMansion. I've got my neighborhood. I've got you know my my bowling league or whatever yeah. whatever it is. Yeah, dating myself. Um, uh, well, isn't the state just going to come and squish those people when they get around to it? Uh, isn't withdrawal just going to leave you with this sort of rump? And then I mean, when you shrink it, to it, a certain a, size, they can brush you off the table. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, so the, the idea here is like I look at this. There's kind of two two prongs. You know, one prong is to try to establish like a parallel structure, like the Amish, in effect, without necessarily being coming entirely Luddite. Uh, but nevertheless, they have the right idea in the sense that they're, they've, got the, they've got the state off their back, but they, they are being attacked. So it just goes to show you that that way of life is actually a threat. Anything that tries to withdraw from the state is a threat to the state. They won't let you out. Totalitarians do not like to let people out. That's why they built the wall around the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, and uh, that's why they uh, they try to get a global system now. And speaking of the Great Reset, they want global governance, which means totalitarianism. Once you have a, a total system and there's no outside of it, that's totalitarian. So there's there's a two pronged thing. You have to both do your own thing, decentralize, and you still have to fight back against the efforts that they're making. Uh, just. In the, in the spirit of courting still more controversy, uh, you look at the Mormons. Mm -hmm. um, you know, here's a group of people who did exactly what you said. You, you go, withdraw, you sort of middle of nowhere, build from the ground up, really tight community, really thick layers of trust, right. stockpiling food, stockpiling money. They get a huge endowment, you know, sort of self-contained society. And then somehow, you know, at some point you wake up and you go like, well, wait a minute. Like, Mitt Romney. <laughs> you, well, you got Mitt Romney. You got you know, who's staffing CIA. I mean, yeah. there's some practical matters. OK, they, they know how to travel. They speak multiple languages. They keep their nose clean, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but this goes back before that, you know, it's like mm -hmm. Howard Hughes, like there are reasons. And mm -hmm. suddenly this this uh, this group of Americans that is sort of in, in one sense, quintessentially the the survivalists who have withdrawn mm -hmm. from state life. Yeah. Um, somehow became really deeply ensconced yeah. in the hardest to dislodge part yeah, of the true. state. And that's part of the state that is least capable of being penetrated by, by public opinion, by, by representative government, by democracy. How do you stop that from happening? Yeah, that's a great point. I think you have to do it with, you know, you have to have principles. So you've got to look at the state as a kind of metastasizing blob that's always going to try to resume and co-opt and absorb uh, uh, to, um, you know, basically sublate, to use a, a Marxist Hegelian type term, sublate uh, its, its uh, remainder, the excess or whatever, it's always going to try to subsume it. So, you know, it takes some principles to resist. And uh, I think it, it's very enticing when people are offered power uh, you know, they'll take over the organ. They'll take over the organs of the very machinery that they thought was evil. Uh, so. Especially when the choice is just getting zeroed out. Right. Right. All right. Well, we've set the table, I think, I think pretty well. So the Great Reset uh, remind us, you know, what was it? Did it happen? Is it done? Um, where did it come from? Uh, these are, you know, it's it's so easy to forget these things because yeah. there's this veneer of normalcy that's been restored. And right. we know that it's not real, but it's there. Right. So the, the, 
to answer your questions, it's ongoing, it's underway, it's not finished, uh, and uh, it's in effect. Um, so it is an attempt on the great uh, on the part of the World Economic Forum and the UN and some and its corporate partners, over a thousand corporate partners uh, that they've signed on, including the top asset managers of the of the world. Uh, you know, BlackRock Inc., of course, and uh, Vanguard Group, and all these corporate players are all on board with rolling out this system called stakeholder capitalism. Uh, and uh, that was Klaus Schwab's brainchild in 1970 uh, in his book. Uh, it was innocuously titled uh, The uh, Corporate uh, Management Enterprise in Mechanical Engineering, of all things. There what he, could go wrong? In this book, he drops this idea of stakeholder capitalism, which is a real misnomer. They want to rule out this system. And uh, it, it's... It's, you know, there's a lot of different ways to understand it. One way is, is to understand it as the, the WEF's public-private partnership uh, routine to roll out uh, and achieve the UN's 2030 Agenda Sustainable Development Goals. Okay, so, you know, what's, what's the root of it, though? The, yeah. the World Economic Forum wasn't around forever. Yeah. Uh, even George Soros wasn't around forever. Right. Uh, you have Dwight Eisenhower sort of on his way out the door. You yeah. It would have been nicer if he'd said it on his way mm -hmm. in the door, but he said it on his way out better yeah. than nothing. Yeah. Uh, hey, guys, this might be a problem uh, turning over uh, political life, turning over the governance to scientists and experts who are especially expert in sort of killing vast numbers of people. Is, is that sort of where it... Where it began in the U.S., where it started to take root, it, it, where do you see it? I think it begins uh, after World War I in particular uh, with the Versailles Treaty. And I think that uh, the development of, uh, uh, of globalist organizations come in after that war and they decide that, look, we can't have this kind of warfare between nations anymore. The only real solution is uh, a global system, global governance. And... Uh, that's what the UN's been pushing since their inception. It goes back to, I mean, you can look at UNESCO, um, which was, uh, you know, one of the agencies, which is one of the agencies of the UN. Uh, the first uh, director, Julian Huxley, Aldous Huxley's brother, basically says straight up, you know, the only solution is world government. And so they- You had H.G. Wells, the Open Conspiracy, you know, all these yep. guys. All these guys have been pushing this for eons. So, uh, so they look for global crises in order to justify global governance. So that's why they pick up on all of the different crises that, or, and they actually magnify them and exaggerate them, in some cases, utterly fabricate them. Okay, so they used COVID as a pretext. Now COVID's gone for, this, for the moment. And now climate change is the big pretext. It's, it, that was the original pretext for this. Uh, but, you know, they, they, see, they, they harp on the so-called global crises in order to justify the only solution which could be imaginable to treat or address a gro global crisis is global governance. And that's exactly what they're up to. Right. So, so let me push you a little bit on capitalism then, because, yeah. uh, you know, there are those who say, and not without reason, uh, that a lot of these shenanigans and a lot of these sort of conceptual frameworks and a lot of the, the orchestration of kind of international collaboration around these, these kinds of goals 
ultimately boils down to, yeah, there were the wars, but you know, who who was making the decisions in the wars? Who survived uh-huh. in the wars? Yeah. It's finance. It's the Banks. big bankers. It's JP Morgan. Right. It's all the rest of these guys. Right. How much do you buy that? How much of, of the root of the problem here is actually not sort of people with political power making decisions together, but it's but actually it, sort of a bank international it, it's finance It's very thing. difficult to say, you know, so I look at the people that speak and act overtly, uh, and uh, that's not necessarily the bankers. So they have, if the bankers are behind it, they have exec, you know, people that execute it, okay? And so as far as I'm concerned, the people that are executing it are the people to watch. Uh, so you have, in, in the case of the World Economic Forum, you have Klaus Schwab. He's kind of like the quarterback on the field. Uh, they may be calling down the plays from the booth, but he's executing the plays. So if you want to stop the play, you've got to stop that. Uh, you know, whether they're puppet strings above him pulling his strings is really, I, I don't know that it's really material to the issue. Uh, maybe this is immaterial to you, but do you, do you think there are, there are folks at that level who are just simply sincerely convinced that we sort of blew it, we screwed everything up, mm-hmm. you know, we tried uh, imperialism and like that fell apart and you know, we tried like... Mm-hmm aristocracy like that didn't go so well <laughs> and then okay well we'll make mm. the world safe for democracy we tried democracy actually mm. the you know we didn't make the world safe from democracy like that also failed mm-hmm. and uh mm-hmm. and now we're trying to give it to, to the robots and like oh, i don't know like maybe that'll work do you how many of these mm-hmm. folks do you think just believe that it's kind of a mess mm-hmm. and this is the last attempt that the west has to kind of keep the mm-hmm. wheels on the on the wagon yeah i mean i think that um these people have to sleep at night. And uh, likewise, ideology is very powerful. And I think they could very well be uh, subject to their own ideology. And likewise, they might be true believers altogether. So if th- that's part of the answer to the question. In terms of uh, this being like the last gasp, I think it's kind of like the denouement that they're looking for. Uh, that is to say, if they, they believe that this could solve like the world's crises. So what, what does Klaus Schwab say the main enemy of humanity is? It's not, uh, it's, uh, it's what he calls uh, uh, disorganization. It's, it's what he calls, um, I forget the exact term that he uses anyway. He, he uses this term. And he used it at the penultimate uh, annual meeting. He said, basically, the, this, the problem is that people aren't all getting together on this, that there's, there's uh, disconformity, you know, lack of conformity on the issue. So I believe they think that's really necessary. I do believe they are true believers. I don't think they go to bed and think, oh, aren't we sinister, evil, wicked people trying to pull off this agenda? I, I truly think they think it's... Uh, they think it's benign or benevolent. Uh, they believe that they would be benevolent dictators. I've, I've talked about this guy before, and I'll, I'll talk about him again. Uh, yeah. Jeffrey Epstein's like mm-hmm. pet scientist, the guy who he brought over um, from uh, the Institute for Advanced Study uh, up to Harvard, um, and you know this is the guy who sort of like got him his his key card and got him his office at at Harvard and whatever. Uh, but like, what you know, why why this dude? And and the answer is because you know he was one of these like top scientists coming out of I think originally Prague, but spent most of his, most of his time in London. 
uh, researching uh, like this kind of collective action, you mm-hmm. know, sort of like collective consciousness, this yeah. like uh, altruism, group altruism. Right. Um, I think you know his his big book that kind of broke him in that space was uh, I think it was called like Super Cooperators, mm. uh, and mm-hmm. it's basically like what can we yeah. learn yeah. from the bugs and yeah. from viruses, right? In order to learn how to like all, sort of put the entire human race in sync organizationally. Yeah, that's. That's the term I was looking for before. This is what Schwab thinks is the the enemy is the lack of cooperation, uh, whatever the term is for that that he uses. But yeah, that's this this is their ideal. Um, they are collectivists through and through. Uh, they say this all the time, you know, collective good, collective uh, collective benefit, collective uh, you know welfare, and so forth. Everything is is really conceived of in collective terms. So they don't want anybody going about their way, doing their own thing without some sort of plan, overarching plan that they're that they're basically following. They don't want individual planning. They want collective, top-down, centralized planning. Well, we got the we got the world map back there behind mm-hmm. you. Uh, I do not have a laser pointer here, but <laughs> I wish that I did because what I want to ask you is like, you know, they don't have the whole world. No, uh, certainly not yet. And you know, it's it's tough because a lot of sort of frustrated folks on our side are ready to just like white knuckle it all the way down the rabbit hole and go like, well, you have to understand like everyone's really in on it and like even the Russian. <laughs> And, you know, yeah. but if you did have the pen and you sort of draw a circle, who's in it? Who, who's which, in the which ce- of the countries? Where's the center? I'll tell you where the center is. Sure. It's Geneva. Okay. Geneva's the center. And this is where you have the banking interest, but you also have the World, Econo- you know, World Economic Forum. But you have all of these other players that are involved in this plan. Uh, so that's, that's your epicenter right there. Okay, and then sort of like, you know, help like the average American or even the, the above average American understand like where do they stand with regard to China? It seems like there's oh, some, some of these question. folks are like, oh, we need to merge with them or right. we need to become right. more like them. Sort of in the way that, you know, we need an Alinsky for the right. They're like, well, we just need to be more Chinese. And then, yeah. then that'll sort of. And then there are others who seem like, well, no, we kind of need to like turn the Chinese into us. Where, <laughs> does, that, where does that stand? Yeah, that's great. I've, I've written about this and I spoke, I've spoken about this question of China. Where do they stand with reference to this great reset? Uh, there's a couple things. First of all, China's the model. That's the model for the West they're trying to roll out. This kind of what what is what China itself calls socialism with Chinese characteristics, which is a kind of a corporate uh, oligarchy with the state on top and a kind of actually existing socialism on the ground for the vast majority. That's your model for the for the Great Reset. So, first of all, China is the model. Second of all, China and these elite and these globalists, the the Western globalists and the Chinese globalists are using each other. Uh, they think well. We'll use, um, we're using China to achieve the, the, you know, the great reset, the global uh, governance, the global hegemony that we're looking for. And China believes they're using these Western globalists as, as well. So the question is, who's the useful idiot here? Will it be China or will it be uh, the Western globalist elites? Well, you know, still, still competitive uh, a- academic culture in China. Uh, still mm. a, a culture of like, you know, make sure the boys uh, don't turn into gay frogs or whatever. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. the, the, the idiocy level seems to be rising in yeah. the U.S. Yeah. Uh, saw, saw a scary stat uh, recently about, you know, and, you know, this is IQ is certainly not the measure of the worth of a human being. No. Uh, but the share of people who are going to college and being graduated from college 
with conspicuously low IQs, it is rising. And at a certain point, at a certain scale, when you're up against someone like the Chinese, these things do start to have an impact on yeah. sort of like competence and can you yeah. run your own machines and, yeah. you know, like who's who's actually doing the military thing? Is it just mm-hmm. sort of like, we'll just make more bots? Um, who is ahead right now in the useful idiot sweepstakes between the uh, US and China? I'd say that the China's in, in the lead in a way because they don't, you know, these globalists are deluding themselves to think that they would be able to... Uh, use China's globalist ambitions against them in the end. I don't think that, uh, I think that they would be basically your Stalin and your useful idiots would be the Klaus Schwab's. And then, you know, we can we can push things a little bit further and, and ask this. If you're one of these disillusioned, dejected Americans, yeah, you love your country or what it used to be. You're unsure where it's going, but it doesn't seem to be going anywhere good. Mm-hmm. You size things up. You go like, well, I cast my vote. Maybe it matters. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe mm-hmm. the system's rigged. Maybe it's not. Yeah. I don't know. I'm just some guy. I have a family. I have a job. I try to find space for, you know, for church and hobbies and feed my pets or whatever. Yeah. Like, I'm just going to try to slowly back away and stay out of the blast radius. And if, mm. you know, if it all hits the fan at least I can, you know, put food on the table and go to sleep without having one eye open. Um, who are you rooting for at this point? If it comes down to like, well, the world is sort of hanging in the balance between the great resetters, uh, the the Borg that's, that ate the West, or the Chinese who, yeah, mm-hmm. they're Chinese mm-hmm. and yeah, they're kind of their own Borg, but at least they're not trying to trans mm-hmm. my son or whatever. Mm-hmm. Who are you rooting for? I'm, I'm rooting against both of them. Um, I, I, but they're both so you know globalism depends on statism and it, it's only possible and only necessary because of these interstate factional conflicts and that's what they you know that's what these global resetters the globalists use as the pretext for globalism and so I'm against both of them they're both statists they're both globalists they're both uh, control freaks, and they all want, they both want, you know, total hegemony over the population, over the world. So I, I'm, a, I'm in favor of those people that are trying to resist it by staying out of the blast. I don't blame you for trying to stay out of the blast radius. That's actually not a bad plan. You have to stay alive in order to pass on any kind of legacy to the future. And so uh, I, 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 I think that's noble in a way. You have to st- you have to live in order to have a legacy. So, yeah. All right. So in, in very fine style, we've succeeded in saving the best for last. Okay. Not only are you rooting for uh, for, for neither of, of the big bads, you actually think that we have a genuine shot at turning things around, at least within sort of what we can, what we can put our hands on. Uh, you call it the great refusal? Grand refusal. Uh, the grant, sorry, the grand refusal yes. to beat the great reset. Right. Um, put some meat on the bones. Just walk us through. We got a few yeah. minutes here. Um, how does how does a person sort of watching this living their life? Yeah. How do they participate in something like that? How do they know it's working? And okay. what kind of time frame are we talking about? Okay. Here? So, you know, let me get the premise down first. Uh, the premise is basically the puppet masters may be trying to pull your pull your strings. The key is you have to disconnect the strings from yourself. This is really only the only power that you have. You don't have the power to stop them trying to do what they're doing. Uh, so cutting the puppet strings. So what that means is resisting uh, the panoply of technologies that they're foisting on us. 
First and foremost is the CD CBDC, the Central Bank Digital Currency. This is the this would close the totalitarian circle and complete and complete the whole regime. We must stay out of it. Now that's easier said than done. That means you have to have a parallel currency in place with a parallel economic structure that'll accept such a currency. You think Bitcoin's the answer there? It could be. I'm not going to say no. And then, uh, uh, you know, it depends on the community. Like uh, some might not, not accept it. Some might say, well, we'll take silver, gold, or uh, Dogecoin, whatever. Uh, whatever works. Now, I know that's a heresy for Bitcoiners to say that there's any other crypto. But I'm not going to adjudicate that problem. I'm just going to say that we need a parallel uh, currency to stay out of the CBDC. And then, of course, we have to resist all of these uh, other uh, transhumanist technologies where they want to have basically uh, control over our organs and organ systems, including brain, brain cloud interfacing. Um, you know, I mean, Neuralink's real. Uh, that's brain computer interfacing. It's just one step away from brain cloud interfacing. Uh, getting all these devices off your body, out of your body. Uh, this is absolutely essential. Uh, you know, and then, of course, you have to uh, refuse the ESG, um, refuse ESG indexing in your banking, in your investing, uh, and, uh, and try to pressure the state for what it's worth, the representatives that we do have, to pull out of ESG as much as possible to bring down this ESG regime, because that just feeds the beast. Uh, the sustainability beast. Basically, we want to fight sustainability. <laughs> because when they speak... <laughs> it's unsustainable. It's not. That's that's their sustainability. That's not yours. That's the key. So, yeah. And then, of course, it just practice the free market in your life. You have to do that. And try to be as entrepreneurial as you can. You have to try to resist these institutions all the way through. So it's going to be a fight, but when has it never been a fight, really? It's, never, mean, it's never been off. Yeah. I, I like Bitcoin personally. I think it's different. It's proof of work. It's not proof of stake. It's sort of like stakeholder crypto. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, it's a powerful beast. This is a protocol yeah. that you yeah. can build, you know, all yeah. kinds of stuff on. And just watching the way that they sort of SEC comes along and they're like, we're going to step on you. And everyone goes, yeah. oh, no. And they all sort of scurry away. Yeah. And then who do you get? You get sort of every major financial services institution in the world going, oh, you know, just by coincidence, I'm applying to to yeah. get into the in, into the Bitcoin business. So, you right. know, if we don't pick up that tool, uh, these guys are going to pick they'll, it up and, said, it. Yeah. and attach it to their marionette system. Uh, okay, where can people find you? Uh, tell us uh, where they can find the book. I mean, you've got your choice of, of books to, to flog, so flog them all or, or flog yeah. your reset. I mean, everything is, uh, I, I do not uh, do, uh, you know, uh, separate pages for my different activities. I don't, uh, I don't do Substack. It's all on michaelrectonwald.com. All of my essays, all of my books, all of my, all of my interviews, everything is on there. Uh, and uh, you can buy my books directly from me, avoiding, uh, you know, the middleman, avoiding Amazon and digital giants. Uh, and I sign, send out signed copies. That's all. So this, I practice what I preach. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, my books. Uh, so the, the, let me just run through real quickly. Uh, Springtime for Snowflakes uh, talks, it's a memoir. It's an academic memoir. It goes through. Uh, my academic history, how I got into uh, uh, leftism and Marxism and how I got out. Uh, it's, I think it's a fascinating read. Beyond Woke is a, a kind of compendium of essays. Thought Criminal is a novel about a thought criminal. 
And uh, it's not based on anything biographical, autobiographical. Never. But, uh, and then The Great Reset and the Struggle for Liberty, which is uh, my, last, my last work. Very good. Uh, just about zeros on the clock here, so that makes it all the time we have, uh, at least until next time around, which is coming very soon. If you found this conversation meaningful, and who wouldn't, please consider becoming a Blaze TV subscriber to help us create more content like this. It will live forever, even outlasting us all on the servers of the future. Go to blazetv.com and use the code ZeroHour20, that's spelled out Z-E-R-O-H-O-U-R-2-0, for $20 off your first year of Blaze TV. This is Zero Hour. I am James Paulus, and may God have mercy on us all.